Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Amen. You can say amen where you are at home or my live studio audience. Amen. I have told my 10 people I need their presence today. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, praise God for those of you that are uh, checking us out online today. Listen, this is our new normal, right? Uh, We don't know how long we will be in this moment, but as long as we are the church, we will never be defined by a building. We are a people, and God in this season of the world He has allowed us still to gather in the church. Some of you, uh, I have about seven or eight people in here. Some of you that were at the beginning of the church know what it was like, amen, when it was actually like this and they had to preach and sweat with seven people here. How many can preach with seven people there, amen? So so this is, we're not new to this, right? But what we are new to is the reality of the coronavirus that uh, is a unique moment having a, pandemic that we are dealing with. Right now, my daughters, um, we're pulling them out of school. School's still going on, but we're pulling them out of school. And a lot of parents right now, particularly in New York City, are wrestling with whether or not to pull their children out of school because of the rapid spreading and potential exponential spread of this virus. We, we know that for the uh, elderly, they are vulnerable. We know that youth are vulnerable. And we know that those with autoimmune uh, deficiencies, uh, their immunity, they have have, uh, potential challenges that they will face. And so because of that, there has been a lot of anxiety and concern. Um, The other day, my wife was in line at uh, Aldi's and... Uh, It's hysteria, whether it's hand sanitizer or tissue or ramen noodles, everyone is concerned because here's the number one thing we're dealing with. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're a scientist or you're a historian. We've never been here before. We've never had a moment like this. September 11th was a day. Uh, The space shuttle Challenger in 1986, that was a moment, a day. But this is a moment where we're not exactly sure what will happen next. And because of that, for many, this is causing hysteria, and for others, it causes anxiety. What is the posture of the church? I I reflect back, we're we're in the book of John, but I reflect back to uh, John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Lazarus is dead, And Jesus is about to heal Lazarus, and right before he heals him, he weeps. He weeps for the family, and he weeps for Lazarus. God was not new to that moment. He was, Christ knew exactly what he was going to do, but yet he still had compassion. I I might just surmise to you that God knows exactly what he's going to do, and he is on the throne 
But for that mother that is wrestling with what to do with her child at school, he sees you. He feels your pain. For the elderly that are wrestling with, should I even be around my grandkids? He's wrestling with you in that decision. And for those of you that you might do gigs with your music and they've all been canceled for comedians and for all types of healthcare workers that are concerned because they're really not sure if they can deal with the pregnant mothers and the cancer patients and the potential coronavirus. God sees your concerns and he is with us. God is not blind to this. He's not, we're new to this. He's not new to this. And so he's with us. God, he is Emmanuel. He's with us. So we rest in that church. We rest in that reality that we know that God cares and God is in control. And we're just going to walk through this. The church will be adaptive. Uh, The church will figure this out through the mighty hand of God. I do want you to know that as a staff, we are uh, considering ways on how we can, one, reach each other. Uh, because we don't want uh, this moment of isolation to become a moment of anxiety and depression for some of us. Uh, Some of you may already be dealing with this, and this might be triggering things uh, for you. But we also want to think about how we can help out our city. And so we are surveying different uh, organizations right now and how we can support the city in this unique time. Today, I want to not just reflect on God's concern for us, but I want to talk about how we move forward together as a church. How do we move forward together in this moment? Right now, we are practicing what we call social distancing. Amen? Uh, We are elbowing each other, a healthy, good elbow. We are hand sanitizing. We are washing our hands. Don't forget to wash your thumbs as well. Amen? So we are washing and hand sanitizing. We're doing all these good things because we want to practice healthy social distancing and cleansing. We're doing this to be able to slow down the rapid pace of this disease. It is interesting that we need a mandate to socially distance one another. We need to be told that. Part of the reason why we need that to be restricted is because as humans, we are social beings. We, we need to be in the presence of one another. It's different when you're in the presence of one another. Social scientists would say that it's one thing if you watch something and you laugh at it, but it's another thing when you're with a friend and you laugh with them. It actually does something to the neurons in your brain. It gives you a, a certain energy that happens. In fact, they often say that when uh, one friend laughs and maybe they push their head back, you'll do the same thing because we need mirrors of ourselves. We are not naturally comfortable with ourselves And so there's a reason why people still want to go to a concert, even though they could listen to music at home. People still want to come to church, even though they could watch at home, because we need social closeness, not just social distancing. We have to have a mandate to not see one another. It is important that we know that during this time of social distancing, we can still be close to one another. One author said, every hand that we're not going to shake needs to be a phone call we make. Every embrace we get, we don't, we miss out on this week needs to be a verbal word of affirmation that we give to someone. 
Every inch and every foot we physically uh, aren't able to be around one another has to be a deep concern for one another because we need one another. Church, social distance cannot take away our social closeness. We still need to fight to be close to one another because we need each other in this moment. Amen? But we not only do this for our humanity, we do this because Jesus is a barrier breaker. Jesus causes us to be close even when we have things that create walls between us. The text that we're going to look at today is a text, a unique one, where Jesus is going to break barriers of gender and ethnicity and immorality even, of a woman who is casted out of society. But Jesus will break barriers and he will create social closeness in the midst of a woman that was being socially distanced. It is this Jesus that we read about in John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3 is a very interesting text. Um, uh, Pastor Rasul preached on it the other week, and he was preaching on Nicodemus. Now, you, you look at these two different people. Nicodemus is named. We know Nicodemus is named. We know Nicodemus is a religious man, one who is a Pharisee, and he is well-regarded. Nicodemus is what we would call one of the in people. One of the people that you would look at on the street and you go, you know, he's probably very wise and religious. He's in. But this woman we're going to read about, we don't even know her name. We're going to read about her past. We're going to read about how irreligious she is. And we're going to read how she is most likely an out person. Someone that you would not regard as being theologically adept. One who would be wise. You would actually disregard her, walk around her. You would distance yourself from her. But Jesus does not create distance. He creates closeness because Jesus is a barrier breaker. John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or your phones at home, please go to John chapter 4. For those of you that are on Facebook, you can feel free to type amen, amen, amen. You feel free to type it. Just type it. Put an exclamation mark. Shout out to the emojis. You can put some emojis on it. Slap an emoji on it. Fire emoji. Come with it. All right? We are going to have church today online. All right. John chapter 4. I believe we're actually going to be putting the verses there in the comment section. We're going to redeem the comment section today. Amen? All right. John chapter 4. John chapter four. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples did. Now, we dealt with this several weeks ago when we were talking about uh, Jesus and the, Baptist, uh, the baptism ministry of John the Baptist. So you can go back and listen to podcasts about that. But look at this last part. He says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, I know that uh, we don't have the map. I wanted to show you guys a map when I was preparing this, but, but here's something very important. Judea is south. And when you have Judea, to get to Galilee, you must go north. So it would go Judea, Samaria, Galilee. You would travel northbound in order to get to Galilee. 
But what was interesting about this moment is that most Jews would actually circumvent Samaria. They would actually take a longer route to walk around Samaria. They would avoid Samaria. There were names they had for Samaritans, so they would actually take a longer route to go around Samaria. In fact, it was common practice. It was understood. Everybody goes around Samaria. No one goes through Samaria. If you're a Jew, if you're a good Jew, you don't go through Samaria. But interestingly enough, church, I just, this will be my central thought here. Uh, and he says in John 4, 4, I am struck by this. I'm blown away by this. John writes it this way. And he had to pass through Samaria. <laughs> he had to. Yeah, he's saying he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I love the what John is doing in the text because he's acknowledging, if you're looking at this from a geographical standpoint, he has to pass through Samaria. But what he's writing here is a spiritual dynamic. He's saying, although all the Jews walk around Samaria and Samaritans, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Samaritans were, were ostracized. They were considered spiritually dirty people. If you understand anything about Jewish history, what you understand is that in Israel, there were these kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom had been taken over by Assyria in about, the, about 722 BC. And so because of that, once the Assyrians take over uh, northern, the northern kingdom, they then begin to breed together, Assyrians and Jews. And because of this mixed breeding, there also began to be a theological, what we call theological syncretism, where now some of their beliefs are being commingled together. And these folks would only take on the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, and they would get rid of the rest. Jews would think to themselves, look at these people ethnically. They look different than us. We can, we can tell you were Jew once, but you got mingled in with something else. We, we also know that you used to read the Bible like we used to, but now you've changed spiritually. So because of that, because we have racial differences and spiritual differences, I've got to avoid Samaritans. It was common practice to socially distance from spiritually dirty people. Yeah. It was common practice that they would do this. Everybody did it. But there was this man named Jesus who said, I got to go through Samaria. I am just so struck that it says he had to. He says, I have to. In order to be the son of God, Christ the Messiah, one who will die for the world. The Bible says he's the savior of the world. I have to go through Samaria. Church, one of the unique things that is happening with this virus, it is taking away the rhythms that we naturally create. You, you have a certain place that you go on the train. Well, now there's nobody on the train. <laughs> you have certain people you sit by. Now there's no one to sit by. And oftentimes God being a barrier breaker will break the rhythms that we've created, that we've created, that we already had social distancing already. 
from one another. God, our Lord Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. Church, we will always create Samaritans. We'll always create a group. Whether it is theological, whether it is spiritual, whether it is physical, we'll always create a group, a group we avoid. We're always Samaritan creators. There's always a people to avoid. There's always a place that everybody's going around them. And yet Jesus is a barrier-breaking God. And because he is a 2 Corinthians 5 barrier-type breaker, uh, he calls us to be bridges within our community. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God is making his appeal through us. That verse is the central verse of this church. I am, I am just so blown away. You know, God, you know God is God, right? I mean, he doesn't need podcasts and, and videos. He can get his message out. For some reason, God makes his appeal through us. For some unique reason, for, for some sovereign reason, God makes his appeal through us. And so if that's God, if God is making his appeal through us, then we got to be barrier breakers, y'all. We can't get comfortable with the culture that creates Samaritans. There are some places we just have to go through. Uh, there are some people we just have to talk to. Uh, there are some people that are sitting around us that everybody's talking about that we need to talk to because we are barrier-breaking people. And because of us being barrier-breakers, and because we love like Jesus loved, and we, we go places, we just have to because that's what he did for us. He broke through the barrier of our sin and he came to us. And Jesus says, I had to for Amanda. I had to for Lourdes. I had to for Oga. I had to because he wanted you and God wants Samaritans and he wants the unwanted that are around you today. He wants the unwanted that are around you today. He is a barrier breaker. And so Jesus had to. He had to go through Samaria. And the scripture says in John chapter four, verses five through six. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Y'all got to understand wells. Well is the present-day water cooler. <laughs> Word up. The well was where people hung out and talked. It's where you would get conversation with people. It's where you'd find a husband or a wife. Amen, amen. It's the well. That's where the well was. That's where your thirst would be quenched. Amen. <laughs> Exodus chapter 2, we have this picture of of Moses finding his wife at the well. So in other words, you, you would go to the well and you would find relationship there. But I, I just want you to notice something. Um, Samaria is essentially in the desert. And I want you to know the sixth hour is about 12 o'clock. And if you've ever been to a hot place, one thing you know is at 12, the sun is piping hot. And here's what the scripture says. She went there at the sixth hour and it says 
Chapter four, verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to drink water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Women at that time would never travel alone. You'd always travel in a group. Two, you'd never go to get water at 12 o'clock. You'd always go in the afternoon when it's cool of the day. Why is this woman walking alone? And why is she going at 12? Because this Samaritan woman was facing rejection and shame. She was experiencing social distancing. People were avoiding her as if she had something they could catch. And so what she would do is she would go when no one's around. I don't want, I don't want people to see me. I don't want to have to deal. I don't have to deal with their looks. Maybe some of you today are enjoying at home because you got fatigued of coming into this space. You got tired of all the looks. You missed a couple of weeks and you felt like people were looking at you. You, you, you have a little bit of a rap sheet and you feel that every time you get some of those looks, people are looking at you in the lens of your past. And so you want to avoid social gatherings. She is coming at 12 o'clock in the heat of the day just so she doesn't have to see people because we all get fatigued of our shame. And so here, this woman ostracized and alone comes by herself. Jesus, though, says to her, give me a drink. It would have been mind-boggling for her that he would dare ask her for a drink. She references this in John chapter four, verse nine. Look what she says. The Samaritan woman says to him, how? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? Uh, now listen, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A man, a Jewish man, would never talk to a Samaritan. Much less he would never talk to a woman without their husband there. They would never talk to a woman. So with those two ideas in mind, because she was seen as spiritually dirty and socially at the bottom, no one would ever talk to her. So she's just amazed. Notice, she's just amazed. Why are you talking to me? No one talks to me. I'm being avoided by everybody. And here you are, a Jew, talking to me. Now, I also want you to notice that she notices he's a Jew, not by what he says, but how he looks, because they looked different, okay? So that meant that they had ethnic differences. That, so she's also saying, I can tell we don't normally, people of your complexion don't normally talk to me. Oh, we're in a conversation. So, she, so she's amazed that he would even dare talk to her. And yet Jesus starts a conversation with a woman who was a Samaritan. Because the Jews, 
Although they were the people of God, they had created a broken system of ostracization of a people. And I want to say to us, the people of God sometimes create broken systems. Systems of ostracization of people. Social distancing of people who don't deserve, who don't have a virus. If anything, they catch our shame. And so here, Jesus, he does something about it. He talks to this woman. As he approaches her, he has this conversation. I want to note that Jesus is doing two things then. Jesus is pursuing this woman, but he's also breaking a system. Jesus does not only heal broken people, he heals broken systems. He's creating a new normal for the church by having this conversation with this woman. What does Jesus say? In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, Jesus, I love that what Jesus is doing here is he's drawing her into a deeper conversation. Jesus could have easily just started the conversation, say, listen, I'm the Christ. And, but Jesus is drawing out of her something. He's engaging her in a conversation. He's persuading her to understand him more. And he says, listen, if you knew the gift, he calls himself a gift, something that you cannot earn, nor can you deserve, but a gift offered. And he says, if you really knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for totally different things. You'd be asking for living water. Now, living water was actually a term that they would use at that time. Living water was water that you would get either in a river or you would get it in the ocean, but it was water that moved, water that was raging. It was, and, and so because of that living water, that moving active water, she automatically doesn't think of anything spiritual. She thinks, oh, that's better water because other water that would be in a cistern would be stale or it'd be sitting there. So she's like, oh, I want that moving active water. That's that good, good. Give me that good, good water. That's that Aquafina water. Like I want that better water. You got that? I want that. I want to get that water from the mountains of Colorado water, okay? So that's what she's, so she's not thinking on this spiritual plane right now. She's just thinking, I want better water. Well, the woman said to him, sir, because that's what you do when you, they offer you better water. Sir, you have nothing, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So she's, again, asking a physical question. And then guess who turns the conversation theological? She does. She automatically says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? He, and then she gives, us, she gives him a historical analysis, of, a historical and theological analysis of the well that they're by. She says, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock, referencing uh, in Genesis. I do want to note, as we just move through this text, this woman oftentimes is considered a harlot and she's considered somebody who we should cast aside. I want to tell you, this is a theologian. 
This is somebody who knows their text. Ladies, I just want you to know, far too often the church has a system of creating women to become more domesticated and more quiet. Oftentimes the church just wants you to be pure. Don't look too good now. We don't want you to be a temptress. We don't want you to look too good. So we either want to domesticate you or we want to purify you, but we don't draw out your theology. And I just want to, I just want to encourage some of you women out there that yes, if you're, if you don't, if you, if you're not a theological wonk, you don't like to do cross references, that's fine. God, God is drawing out of you who you are, but there are some of you that are theologians and because of your past, you think your past takes away your theology of now. God takes a woman who is in the midst of her sin and draws out her theology. I just want you to know there are some theologians watching this. You might've done dirt last night, but you're a theologian and God wants to draw that out of you. John chapter four, verse 13 and 14. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water. And this is the key part of it, welling up to eternal life. Never thirst again. When he uses this picture of thirst, Obviously, he's drawing on the fact that we, when we are parched, we need a source to quench our thirst. We need a source outside of us to quench our thirst. And he says that you'll never have to go outside for another source other than me. That's essentially what he's saying. And he says that there will be this wellspring inside of you welling up to eternal life. He's essentially talking about the Holy Spirit. And how when you come into a relationship with God, you give your life to Christ and he gives you his spirit to live inside of you. And that's why when the Bible talks about peace, it doesn't talk about your peace. It talks about peace that is fruit of the spirit. It talks about joy that is of the spirit. And so God gives you, he gives you his source, his resource, the spirit of God now to live inside of you now. Will you have times that you're thirsty? Yes, you will. Amen and amen. You'll have moments when you will not go. You'll go to the wrong broken cisterns. You'll go to the wrong well and you'll still be thirsty. But what he's saying is ultimately you'll never thirst because this will lead up to eternal life. There's going to come a day where we're never thirsty again, y'all. There's going to, there, there ain't no Rona in heaven. Amen. Like there, there's none of that in heaven. There, and, and I'm just telling you, we, we're, there, there is anxiety today, but there is no anxiety in heaven. Uh, we were at a wedding the other day. And I mean, it was a picture of a future day when the bride and the bridegroom will be together. Church, there will be a day when we will never thirst again. But I want to encourage you. If you find yourself hungry and creating idols out of your job or out of men or women, this moment tells us God can take it in a second, can he? People like, man, I love sports. Well, God was like, how about this? How, do you love me? And he'll take sports in a second. Do you, can you imagine that? Sports went like this, boom. We like all the playoffs. He's like, how about the playoffs? Like they're off. No more playoffs, right? Gone, right? Just like that. The Lord will be worshipped. He will be worshipped. And so, so the woman, she says to him, sir, again, give me this water. So I, I, you know, I, I want to be at this place where I never thirst. But I love what she says. 
But can I keep it real with you? What's your name, Jesus? Can I keep it real with you? I don't ever want to have to come back to this well again. I don't ever want to have to walk out here in shame again. I don't ever want to have to come out here in the middle of the day in the heat again. I never want to feel this shame again. Can you relieve that? Can this water you offer relieve my shame? And here's what Jesus does. This teaches us something, church. Before he moves into this evangelistic moment of telling her about the good news that removes shame and sin, he says, before we talk about the good news, we got to talk about some bad news. We, gotta, we can't just move on. There's got to be an admission of sin. There's got to be a confession. Because in order for me to save you, you got to know what you're getting saved from. And so, John 4, Jesus says, y'all, this is, Jesus is the clapback king, amen? This is the hardest verse. Like, every time I read, I'm like, Jesus, why you did that? Why you say it like that? Ow. Okay, so let's just read this. Mm, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus said to her, go call your husband, which is like, cool because it was customary. If you were going to have any kind of engagement with a woman, you would call your husband. So he says, go call your husband and tell him, you know, come on here. So the woman's like, bet. Well, I have no husband, which was an interesting half-truth. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have, five, you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Man, I, when I, every time I read this, I'm like, oh, I want to hug her like, baby, it's okay. You didn't know that was going to happen. Like, oh, Lord of mercy. Okay. So what does Jesus do? He says, yeah, you're right. The man you're with right now is not your husband. Oh, in addition to that, you've had five husbands, okay? Now, I, I want to make a really quick, very important theological note here, though. And I think that this is something that gets missed in this text, particularly when this is preached. One, a woman did not leave a husband. Husbands left wives, a woman could not draw up a contract to be divorced. She got divorced. So what's happened here? Five times she's been married. Five times she's been divorced. She never requested one of those divorces. And a man at that time could get a divorce for any old reason. It's actually written that if a woman burnt the food, they could write up a contract for divorce. So they could get a divorce for any reason. In addition to that, you would pay what's called a bride price, a dowry, when you got married. And you got that money back. You got a money back guarantee when you got the divorce. So if you wanted to, if your money was, if your dough was low and you needed some money, you could just trade. So in many ways, this, we're not just looking at an adulterous woman. We're looking at some ways a woman who's being sex trafficked who's being dealt with constantly because at that time, because of her financial dealings, a woman at that time could not make it on their own financially. So she had to continually get married in order to make it if she didn't have a family. 
So I, I just want to make it clear about this woman. I know we've painted the picture of her as a woman of the night. She's a woman who's desperate. But, so those five times that she's been divorced, that's one thing. But I do want to make note. Now she's not even getting married no more. Huh? Now she's with this sixth dude. And she's with him, but not with him. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Now, now she's like, ah, you know, I've done this so many times. How about we just have a relationship, but not a relationship? You know what I'm saying? Like, let's be, let's have some benefits, but let's not really be anything really committed. Because I've been through commitment before, and I don't want to do all that. Because she has been so abused, she has now compromised for a broken acceptance. She has now allowed herself to be willing to be a wife without being a wife. That's what shame does. That's what happens when you give your heart to people and they disregard you. You lower your standards and you allow yourself to have a broken acceptance. You say things are okay and you know deep and well they're not okay. And Jesus says, listen, I know about the five times, but let's talk about this man you're with now. He's not your husband. That's the sin. That's the part he's really catching on to. That man you said you're not with, you are with, but you're not with him and he's not with you. And I want to tell our sisters today, You can play house. You can play like it's a real relationship. And you can do all the things that feels like it's a marriage. But you know deep in your heart it's not a marriage. And it's not a relationship. And even though it's not a real marriage, if he leaves you, it'll feel like a real divorce. So be encouraged. What Jesus is doing is he's not calling her out. He's making her aware of something better, of something greater. And so look at what Jesus does here. He says, yeah, the dude you with, he, that, ain't, that ain't a relationship, right? So verse 19 and 20, the woman said to her, said to him, sir, again, she's like, sir, <clears throat> that's what you do. That's what you say when you get hemmed up. You're like, sir, I perceive, I perceive that you are a prophet. <clears throat> and this is, look, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. <laughs> Jesus is like, the man you with now ain't your husband. She's like, can we talk about mountains? Like, she's just like, like, and this is what we do. This is what we do. Just like, you know what I'm saying? What about what mountain, like what chapter and verse you think, what mountain you think we should worship on? Like completely changes the subject, praise God. So just um, listen, when conviction hits, you will either have deep self-introspection or quick deflection. And it's particularly the theological ones. Y'all know who you are. You, you got the Greek and the Hebrew, and they're like, where were you last night? They're like, well, let's talk about the night. You know, God, <laughs> God moves in the night, doesn't he? Amen. Like, like, talk about your sin. Okay, so that's, I don't have time, but this is what is happening in this text. Verse 21 through 22, Jesus said to her, woman, 
which is, again, if you look back earlier when Jesus was with his mom, woman is a term of endearment. It's like saying, ma'am, he's honoring her. He's not disrespecting her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. I don't have time to get into the theological depth here, but I just want to encourage you, for those of you that have friends or family members that you have some theological differences with, um, it, sometimes it's not uh, cool to agree to disagree. Like Sometimes it's better that we just work through disagreement and we allow persuasion to happen because a lot of times people have the right heart but wrong facts. And what's happening here is he's just telling her, no, salvation is from the Jews. So he is persuading her towards the truth. And then verse 23, verses 24. The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's what we saw. He was dealing with the truth of the situation. When he was talking about her sin, he was dealing with the truth of her life. But when he talks about spirit, he's, he's talking about our countenance. He's talking about our passion. He's talking about our presence. Even now, for those of you at home, you can still worship in spirit. You can be connected with God and connecting with others in spirit and in, in who you are deep with inside of you. The honest parts of you, the, the, the person with inside of you, your soulishness, but also the truth of you. It is not enough to be expressive and, 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 and showy in worship, but not true. It's spirit and truth. And the unique thing is it says the Father is seeking those people. This, to me, is one of the most instructive dynamics we have to understand about God. Some of you are watching this video because you are seeking God. Do you know that God's seeking you? Some of you have been having a stale life with God. But he wants to be alive inside of you. He wants you to worship to be alive and robust. That living water is him. That moving water is him. Spirit and in truth. It's not enough that you just read about God. It's enough that you have an encounter with him. And that is what he's talking about. He's seeking people who want a life, an encounter with God. And so here it says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In verse 26, Jesus says to her, finally, I who speak to you am he. And in verse 27, <laughs> the disciples, they come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Again, they were amazed that Jesus would even be seeking to talk to this woman. But in verse 28 through 30, the last part of this as I close. So the woman left her water jar 
and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now this woman went down there at 12 o'clock during the day in the heat by herself to get water. Clearly, she needed water. But once she got a picture of Jesus in her mind and heart, it says she left her water jar. Everything that she had been doing up to that point got reprioritized with an encounter with Jesus. She just left the water jar there. She couldn't do what she was doing anymore and she couldn't be the same. And that is the nature of encountering Jesus. We leave lifestyles, we leave habits right there at the feet of Jesus because we cannot be the same. But the second thing that happens is she tells someone about it. She has to tell. She goes to the very people she was trying to avoid and tells them about Jesus. She has to tell them. Just as Jesus had to go through Samaria, this woman had to tell her friends. Moreover, she had to tell her enemies. She had to tell the people who were shaming her. She had to. Now, why she have to do that? Why she do that? Why she have to? I'll tell you why. Because one day, there's going to be a vaccine for this coronavirus. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to be breaking news. Because there's some news that's too good not to share. There's some news you got to tell the world about. You're like, this is what everybody needs. And this woman believes that it does not matter our differences. It does not matter your background or mine. I know you've been trying to avoid me. Well, I've been made available to someone who I would always think would avoid me, but he made himself available to me and I want to make him available to you. Jesus the Christ, this news is too good not to share. And Jesus, as we break our rhythms, as we now are in homes, and we're figuring out our new lifestyle. Church, this is not a moment of Netflix and chill. This is not a moment where we just eat ice cream on the couch all day. This is a moment where we gotta begin to think, now that we can't gather with the, name, the same people, maybe God is sending me to a Samaria I've been avoiding. Maybe I need, as in Matthew chapter nine, where Jesus forces out the laborers of God. Many of you know our church prayed that for 21 days, force us out. I believe in many ways this is an expression of God forcing us out into the harvest. It's too good not to share. God's too good for people not to encounter him. And so I pray today, if there are people you've been avoiding, let these new rhythms create a new pattern of life so you can meet new people. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you we honor you and we pray a blessing over this time. Would you use this video? Would you use this moment? Would you honor your name? 
with your word. Would you honor your name even now online? For those of us that don't know you today, I pray we would leave our water jars. We would leave whatever lifestyle we've had and we would draw near to the Father in Christ's name. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.